it's the beginning kind of a new year and, and a couple different occasions over the break was just talking church with people and uh, it's an interesting thing to stop every once in a while and remind ourselves or for me to be reminded um, how weird of an animal church can be, church services can be, right? I remember when I, I first started going or trying to find a church at Clemson University kind of on Sunday mornings, first thing is trying to wake up at 8 o'clock on a, on a Sunday morning at Clemson University, you're like, it's you and, and maybe a few campus employees or something like the only ones up. Um, everybody else is <laughs> half comatose. Uh, and, um, and so it's an interesting thing, but would, I started going to different churches and it was, it was really interesting. We'd go to, uh, I went to a Presbyterian church for a while and I just didn't understand the word elect. I would hear it five times every Sunday, and, and I was like, well, who's elect? Am I elect? Where's, where was the election? Um, and then I went to this Baptist church. Oh, shoot. I was going to say, um, there's no way out of that, is there? Um, <laughs> I went to, uh, uh, <laughs> no way, I didn't mean that, sorry. Um, but I went to this church, and the guy was always yelling at me. Uh, and it was, like, I was always wondering, like, why is he so mad at me? Like, he's just always yelling at me. Like, he's really angry. Um, and then I went to this other church, and I thought, wow, everybody loves each other here. And then um, after a couple weeks, I found out that everybody hated each other because some people um, really didn't like the drums, and some people really did. And it was like my first experience of, like, that whole that you could almost kill your fellow Christian over the style of music that you play on Sunday mornings, right? And then I went to this campus group, FCA, and it was really dynamic. And, and I remember thinking, wow, okay, I really like this music, and this, this music's kind of cool. But then after a while, it, was like, it felt like a concert. It was like a half hour, 40 minutes of, of music, and then like five minutes of something else. And and then announcements for all the campus groups going on. I felt like, wow, I'm, you know, I don't understand why I'm going to a Christian concert. And it was just everything I went to had this weird element to it. It's like, well, why? What, what is that? And why are we doing that? And um, I've, I, in, in Antioch's six years old. We do a lot of things. But I, I think sometimes I don't always wrestle with the fact that a lot of people come in here and wonder, well, why, why do we do that? If you've never been to a church, you're probably like, well, I, where'd the singing come from? I, I don't understand. Like, we don't, we don't sit around and sing normally, right? You don't stand up in the middle of a football game unless you're a Redskins fan and, and sing. Um, and uh, this is West Coast. I don't know who's... Uh, but you don't, you know, we don't sing as a society, right? I mean, the movies aren't like the Gene Kelly movies anymore or, or musicals. You know, I, I haven't seen Les Mis yet just because I'm terrified of being sung at for three hours. Like, I, I really, free, it's, it's, it's freaking me out. And I just can't understand how, um, I just, just can't understand how, um, who am I thinking about? I don't understand how he can be singing. What's his name? Russell Crowe. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. And, and so that, that's part of what's scaring me. Um, but so, like, why do we sing? And, and so there's some of you that might be sitting here and you're like, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And then uh, others of you might be like, and why would you make me shake hands with people? Um, don't you know this is flu season? Um, and and it's, so it's just an interesting thing. You know, we, we gather together 
But there's a lot of cultural realities that can happen in each individual church. And, and some, some macro things that happen within Christianity as a whole that are kind of different from the mainstream. And if you're not used to it, it, it can be really awkward. I mean, some of us, if we went to a Mormon church, it might be really intimidating. Like, I, I don't know the behaviors. I don't know, I don't know, what, the, I don't know what the norms are. And that, that cultural kind of reality begins to be something that, that pushes you away or makes it awkward for you. And that, that has nothing to do with why people gather. Does that make sense? So the, the reason we gather here has nothing to do with the cultural norms, has no, nothing to do with even instruments or singing. It has to do with hopefully praising God and being able to talk about our faith in Christ and our, our belief that God has reconciled the world to himself by sending us his son. And so if you're here this morning or if you've been here for a number of weeks and, and, and you're tripped out by a bunch of cultural realities, know that you're not alone. Um, half the people in here are probably tripped out by it too. This is, this is Bend, Oregon. Uh, and that, that those, are, those are things we can talk about. So you can go ask Brandon all the questions of why. Uh, um, no, I'm just I'm kidding. But you can, even, uh, you can ask anyone on staff. You can ask anyone here and, and just say, hey, why do, you, why do we do that? Um, and there might be good reasons. And then there might be some that are really dumb reasons. And maybe your question is the thing that can, can be cat, uh, you know, a catalyst for change. But this whole idea of where we're at culturally is a huge thing right now. Um, we talk about it, but it's, it's usually one of those sermon points that comes with a barb on the end of it. More people are leaving Christianity than ever before in America. It's like, and it's almost like you're supposed to feel the hit, right? <gasps> oh. But then we never discuss it. Right? We never, we never, we move on like we made some great point and hit you over the head and, and shock value, but then we, we never really say, well, why is that and what do we do about that? We just move on singing our songs and, and doing our, our, our fraternity handshake. Does that, does that make sense? Um, there's more people joining that category demographically of no religion that's like the, one of the fastest growing subsets of American culture are people who identify themselves as no religion. CNN had a big article recently saying it's the most underserved demographic in Congress. So in, in Congress, you have all these people that are Catholic or uh, Protestant or um, Muslim or, or what, what, whatever in terms of religion or even, you know, even I'm not gonna, I'm not going to say anything after that word. Um, whole, you know, name any religion. I'm sorry, name any religion. But there's all these different religions that have somebody that kind of represents them in Congress. But there's only one congressman supposedly that that claims no religion. And so this whole CNN article was saying you have this huge population of America that's growing really fast. And where's their rep where's their representation in Congress? The no religion representation. And so it's, it's growing really fast, and so all these kind of cultural realities are happening, and I think sometimes we, we don't know what to make of them, we don't know where to go with that conversation, we throw them around, but when we're in church, we never really analyze or, or dialogue about it, but then when we walk out of church, we're faced with it every single day. 
Um, your kids, if, you're, if you have grown kids, might not go to church. Why? Um, high school students in this town might not go to Young Life or might not go to a church youth group, even though when you grew up, it seemed like everybody had their youth group. Well, why? Um, people that used to come to this church a year or two ago might not be going here anymore. And um, why? People that claim they're Christians and claim that they're very devout Christians and claim that they want to raise their, their kids to be Christians might not go to church at all. It, you know, maybe Christmas time or something like that. Well, why is that? And I, I think it's worth kind of exploring these things. And this morning, what I wanted to do is just take us to the book of Acts. We do a, a biography, typically every... January, the first Sunday out of the gate, we do a biography on, on a figure in Christian history. It's just kind of a fun way to, to look at the Christian faith through the lens of um, a key thinker or a key kind of church figure along the way. And this morning, what I kind of thought we'd do is do a biography of Mars Hill. It's, it's not a person. It's not a church in Seattle. It is a church in Seattle, it's, it's, but it gets its name from something else. Um, but I thought it'd be kind of fun just to do a, a biography of Mars Hill and, and, uh, and see what it can't teach us about this whole idea of culture and faith. And then starting next week, we're going to do a four-week series on the greatest commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're going to just take four weeks to really look at what does that really look like to love God completely in those different areas uh, of our lives and of our, our makeup, ourselves, uh, what it looked like for Christ to love God that way and how it fleshes out in the rest of the New Testament. So we're going to kind of kick off next week with love the Lord you got with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, but if you'll turn to Acts, I really want to just walk us through what transpires in the sermon that takes place uh, on Mars Hill. So picking it up in verse 16, so... The book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 17, verse 16. And Paul is on his, his missionary journeys, and he's come from uh, the area of Berea and, and is traveling through and then ends up coming into Athens. And it says this, beginning in verse 16. We're going to read the whole rest of the, uh, this chapter. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, waiting for, um, waiting for Timothy and them to catch up to him, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day, day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news of Jesus and about the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It's kind of funny, this like little cultural commentary that gets thrown in the book of Acts, basically <laughs> Calling the Athenians a bunch of, um, I don't know, spending their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. They were into fashion. 
they were into whatever the cultural uh, pop culture trends were of the day. In verse 22, it says this, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. So they have uh, all of the Greek gods that have been renamed um, with Roman names under Roman occupation. And they're worshiping all these different gods. And in the middle of that, they have this um, kind of altar, this, this, this celebration of the unknown God. And so Paul is really taking that and pulling it into the conversation and saying, what you don't know, I'm going to teach you or I'm going to tell you. And he says, now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And from one man... He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the, wor the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So what do we get from that? Um, let's walk through it just a little bit and set the stage um, of what is going on in this sermon. So when we begin, Paul's in Athens, and he does what is, is usually his custom. He starts in the synagogue. He's trained. He's a Pharisee. He's a, an ex-Pharisee, if you will, but he's a Pharisee. He knows the law. He knows how to reason with Jews. He knows how to talk to them about the prophecies of the Messiah coming and, and to be able to tell them about Jesus. And he goes in, and he's, he's there reasoning with the Jews. And then he goes out. And he's in the marketplace. And in the marketplace, he begins talking with uh, the common people of Athens. Not necessarily the Jewish people, but just the common people of Athens. And in the marketplace, he runs into different schools of thought. He runs into the Stoics and he runs into the Epicureans that have a different worldview and a different understanding of life. And he's talking with them about what's going on. Well, they're Athen Athenians and they're connected to kind of the whole culture and, and the whole makeup of Athens and how the intellectual climate is set. 
And so they take him and bring him to basically the key influencers and the key leaders of society that meet for a council, almost like judges or lawyers, if you will. And he brings them, uh, they bring him there to present kind of his ideas to them, the ruling intellectual elite, if you will. And so this is kind of what's happening. So if we walk it through, um, the Epicureans and the Stoics, what's going on there? You know, I actually, I have slides out of order, but why don't we just roll through the slides and, and we'll, because it all kind of goes together. But if you go to Athens, even today, you cannot miss the number of temples and that all the temples are dedicated to a different God. I mean, you just, you cannot miss it. it. It's just everywhere you turn, there's a temple dedicated to a different God. And this is what begins to kind of take the Paul who's just simply waiting for his friends to show up, resting, kind of passing through Athens, had no intention of staying there as, as a passerby, and he's overwhelmed by the reality of what's going on, and it moves him, compels him to action. So the first thing you get is just the fact that it's full of different temples to different gods. This is one of the, the biggest of all ancient temples. Uh, this is what's left of it, but it's the temple to Zeus, uh, that if you were on the Acropolis, you'd be looking out and down on this kind of um, the backside of the Acropolis, if you will, uh, and this temple is there by itself um, dedicated to Zeus. When you look, this is standing on Mars Hill, so the, the rock in the foreground is a part of Mars Hill. And this is looking at the front of the Acropolis. Uh, in the top right, you have a little temple, and that's um, to uh, the temple of Nike. And Nike is Greek for victory, if you didn't know that. Um, and so it's a little temple kind of as you're walking up to Nike, uh, this is the same temple. So this is the little temple to Nike. That's uh, the main temple that we all identify with on the Acropolis. Any, any ideas who this is dedicated to? It's a, it's a trick question. I was just trying to get some interaction. But it's uh, dedicated to Athena, the goddess of Athens, right? Um, so this is the main temple on the Acropolis. Uh, this temple here with the figurines is uh, the temple of Daphne. That's also up on the Acropolis. So Acropolis, um, polis in, in Greek is the word for city. It's where we get politics uh, from, from Aristotle writing about the, how, you, how you organize a city. But, but polis is, is city. And uh, the, the front word there, um, Acropolis, I don't know. Acra, I, I don't know, whatever that front word is, is like the highest, means the highest. So it's the highest um, part in the city. So the Acropolis just simply means it's the highest part in the city. Uh, and then on it, you have these various temples. Um, so this is the kind of the last one up on the Acropolis itself. If you look from the Acropolis, Mars Hill is, is uh, right here. Oh, wow, you can't, it's dark, isn't it? So the Mars Hill is here, and, and right on the top, the flat area here is where people would meet. They would try court cases. They would kind of um, make decisions and, and render decisions. 
uh, on different kinds of uh, justice issues. And from Mars Hill over down this area, you have what was the Roman Agora, which was the marketplace. So basically the, the center of town where everybody would trade their goods, sell their goods, is the, the Roman uh, Agora, the marketplace, and then another temple down here. So if you think of being on the Acropolis and you look out to where you guys are, you have this huge temple of Zeus. Uh, then right with you on the Acropolis, you have um, all these different temples. And then you look out and you've got another temple right by the, the city center, the marketplace. Um, and then there's more off to your left. So everywhere you go, everywhere you look, there are temples to different gods and goddesses. And so that's kind of the situation confronting Paul. And so in the marketplace, the Roman Agora, I think is more of a close-up. So these are the old ruins of the, the Roman marketplace, the Agora. Uh, and there's still the marketplace right along this. This is the current uh, marketplace now. So if you go to Athens and, and you walk this road right here, that's all shops and booths and trinkets and everything else. Um, so the marketplace here is where, where commerce was, the, inter, the interaction of ideas. And so the commentary here is, you know, those Athenians, they sit around and whatever the latest fashion is in terms of ideas and, and thought, they're really into that. Now, this is kind of where Socrates would have spent a lot of his time. So Socrates would have been in the marketplace, um, kind of in the Socratic method, dialoguing with different influential figures or key thinkers of the day and asking them questions and kind of poking on them until he exposed the holes in their thinking. And then they would kind of look to him and he'd be like, well, I never claimed to, to have all the answers. And so he had this kind of Socratic method of dialogue. And that's the history of Athens coming into it. And so even to this day, this is kind of where uh, the interaction of ideas happens. So the word Stoic even, even borrows from this. So Zeno, the philosopher, used to talk underneath the Stoa, which is kind of the awning that would have been there uh, in the marketplace to, to keep the rain off of people, so kind of like the patio ceiling. Does that make sense, the, the awning? And so that's called the Stoa. So the Stoics borrow their name from Zeno who would be underneath the Stoa and talking about his ideas. And so that's where Stoicism kind of gets its name. And so the Stoics really answer this question that all philosophers try to answer, uh, which is what is, the, what is the way, what is the best strategy for the good life to, to reach the, uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful? Basically, happiness. Like, what is, what is the best way to reach happiness? And by happiness, they didn't mean pleasure. They meant um, a state of affairs, the good, the true, and the beautiful, that, that would work for the city as well as for the, the citizen. And their model of answering this question, their strategy for answering this question, was to say that duty is the best way, duty and virtue is the best way of attaining a life of measured and steady happiness both for myself and for society. So the key thing here is to do your duty and that's, that's the way you reach the highest good. Okay? Now the Epicureans, instead of borrowing their name from 
from a thing or a place. They borrow it from Ep uh, Epicurus himself, so the chief proponent of this kind of philosophical school. And the Epicureans are mischaracterized often in a simplistic way of saying they were just hedonists uh, and all about pleasure, period, full stop. And pleasure was, is, and, and was the way that Epicureans answered that question, how do you reach the highest good? And their answer wasn't duty, but it was pleasure. By the way, if you, if you ever saw the movie um, Gladiator, where Russell Crowe sings his way through the movie, um, loosely they bring in some historical traits, but Marcus Aurelius was a true Roman emperor uh, and he was kind of a philosopher emperor, if you will, and wrote a lot of things in his meditations. And you get some of that stoicism, that um, kind of that duty and, and obligation kind of side of things. Uh, the Epicureans are saying it's not necessarily duty, it's pleasure that really helps you attain true happiness. And when you really get in and look at the Epicureans, a lot of the writings actually say no virtue is good because virtue is a part of how you uh, derive pleasure. Proper function uh, is a part of how you uh, derive pleasure. We all know that there are good pleasures. Um, and so virtue has its place here in maximizing pleasure as we're trying to attain the highest good, which is, which is happiness. And so they're both, both these camps are trying to reach the same thing, which is uh, kind of true and, and lasting happiness, good for the individual and the city, and they come at it with two different strategies, one doing duty, one doing pleasure, one, if you will, being a little bit more objective, the other one maybe owing a little bit more towards the subjective side. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But so Paul interacts with these two different people, and he basically preaches the gospel to them. And he says... Um, you know, there's this, so if you look at it, you see it right here. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because, okay, in reaction to what Paul was preaching. It says, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So both of these philosophical schools are trying to say, how do you reach true life, the good life, fullness of life? And Paul comes and says, let me tell you the gospel, the good news that God sent Jesus. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and life to the full. Jesus isn't answering a different question than what everyone has asked since the beginning of time what philosophers have asked, what Athenians have asked, what others have asked. Everyone naturally asks, how do I, I truly attain uh, the fullness of life? How do I find goodness? And, and that's in us all to ask that question and to desire to find true life. And so what's fascinating is sometimes we get on an extreme and we act as if Christ didn't engage that question or if God is a big killjoy in the sky that has come to be super stoical and say it's all about duty, and we miss the fact that even duty and stoicism aims at something higher, um, and that God is against pleasure as if all pleasure is bad pleasure, 
and not understanding that God created many good pleasures, and we just think that God is against pleasure for duty, and we miss the fact that God sent his son to say, as I, I command you, yes, you need to obey. And as I command you things, I'm leading you to fullness of life and good kinds of pleasures. Because I've come that you may have life, I'm dying that you may have life, but life to the full, the, the fullness of life with me. And that human flourishing, the way I designed you to be, the relationship I designed for you to have with me, the kind of life that, that discipleship brings, and the calling that I'd like for you to pursue, that all of that's going to come as you know me and are reconciled to me. And not only that, and you guys know I'm fond of preaching John 15, but Jesus even says, remain in my love and you do this by obeying my commands and I tell you this so that your, your joy may be complete and my joy may be in you. So the commands that God tells us to obey, that Jesus says to obey, he says it's not about obedience, it's not the end. Obedience is a means to the end of being with me and having fullness of joy. And so Paul preaching the good news. Why is it good? Because it's not bad. It's good because it's, I mean, do you ever really just stop and, 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 uh, and break out the logic of that? Like, why, why do we call it the good news? Why when the angels herald Christmas and the advent of Christ, why is it always glad tidings? Because it, it, it's good, right? Good for who? Good for us. Good in what way? Good in the, the greatest of all possible ways for our life and ultimate fulfillment and being reconciled to God. It's good news. And so Paul is preaching them, hey, look, I got something to say to this conversation that you guys have where you're always arguing about whether it's the, the objective way or the subjective way to get at the fullness of life and what, what we all kind of aim for, the good, the true, and the beautiful, the end. And he's saying it's not the objective way, it's not the subjective way, it's through the incarnation and the resurrection and forgiveness that comes through Christ that you can be fully reconnected with God in an intimate way because he's not foreign and he's not these kind of made-up, quasi-human, you know, Mount Olympus gods. But he's a god you can have a relationship with. And when you find that, you have the answer to the question that you've always been asking. And so Paul enters right into the debate with these philosophers. And he's preaching the answer to the question that they're asking. Right? Which is, how do you experience the good life? Now listen to how that switches. So they're... they're they're going, okay, what's going on with this guy preaching Jesus in the resurrection? So they take him and bring him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Areopagus um, is uh, uh, to combination two words, and I won't try and butcher them for you, but uh, Arios um, is the place, and uh, uh, Pagas means hill, and so... Um, it's a rock. Uh, Arios is, Pagos is rock. Arios is a, is a god. There you go. Glad that was easy. So it's, it's uh, the rocky place named after this god. And that's why when the Romans come, they call it Mars Hill. Because Mars is the god of war. And so it's, they kind of just translate it over. Um, and this is supposedly where the trial in, in mythology... Uh, do we have Mars Hill? It's at the end of it. I'll go, I'll go back. 
I don't know where I'm at anymore. Someone smarter than me. Have a, there we go. So this hill is supposedly in mythology where the son of um, Poseidon was killed and where the trial took place uh, for the god um, uh, you know, that it's named for. Uh, it becomes Mars. Um, who supposedly killed Poseidon's son. This is where the trial took place, right? So when the Romans come, they translate the name over. They would take the, the Greek gods. Instead of replacing them, they would just rename them. And so now this is now Mars Hill. And again, since antiquity, this is where trials take place. And so after Paul is done kind of debating about the good life and about happiness and about how fullness of life is going to come with the philosophers, they bring him to a different set of thinkers up here that are much more judicial. And he comes and stands before them. And there's a plaque, actually, if you walk on the other side of this hill that has Paul's kind of sermon on it. And he stands before him and gives a fascinating sermon. And this sermon has been dissected for 2,000 years as an example of what it looks like to minister or to preach cross-culturally. Meaning, you're not dealing with people that share the same worldview or, or kind of come from the same culture as you. You're translating ideas into a different cultural context. And so as Paul's on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, he stands before them and then delivers this sermon. Now, a couple things you'll notice. He talks about you have all these gods that you worship, and you have one called the unknown God. Well, I'm going to tell you something about that God. And what does he say about that God? In verse 24, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. So there is a God who created all this, and he is above heaven and earth. So all of these, all of these other temples and all of these other gods or idols that you have are below God, the creator God. And then he says, let me tell you a little bit more about the creator God. He does not live in temples built by hands. Wow, that's fascinating when you look at all the buildings around Athens, right? I mean, that's like almost uh, offensive to say to these leaders of Athens that their most beautiful buildings, that what they're known for, what people go on pilgrimage for, are kind of empty. There's nothing in them right? And we're like, oh yeah, those Athenians, you know, they wasted a lot of money building a lot of buildings because God's not in there. What about Americans who spend over 50% of our tithe money on buildings in America? Churches. What about Bend, Oregon, where every corner has a church on it? Would, would we, if we showed up from a different time and place or a different part of the world and we, we popped into here and we looked everywhere, would we kind of look at us the way we think of Athens? Like, man, God isn't in those buildings. Why are you spending so much money on those buildings? Um, God doesn't live in temples built by hands. By the way, the word church in Greek, ekklesia, is just a common word that Paul kind of takes and baptizes and, and gives it an extra religious significance meaning, but it just simply meant um, gathering, 
Okay, so the, the Greek word is actually used for the people that gathered to stone Paul. It's an ecclesia. That's kind of trippy, isn't it? But what you get from that, what you get from that is simply this, that a church is, and the way Paul baptized it meant it, a church is the gathering of people that, that take the name of Christ. We are the church. When we walk out, the church dissipates with us as we go into this community. And then when we get, when we get together next week, then the church gathers again, once again. And so the building really becomes nothing but bricks and mortar. And we get confused because we slap the word church onto that, and then we, we have this kind of gymnastics thing of, well, what, I'm, I'm lost. What is a church again? And, and it's really helpful when you begin to really understand what a church is because the church gathers and the church scatters. Like we inhale and exhale. Does that make sense? It, it gathers and then it scatters. So I, I was at this conference last year and it was um, the Church and Human Trafficking Conference. So it was talking about modern day slavery and how the church is going to interact and deal with this. And all this time, it was really fascinating because I, I got to sit there and listen. And I don't get to do that much. And I'm listening to the language. And all the language is the church is going to end slavery. The church is going to deal with slavery. The church is going to fix this problem. And I remember thinking, what do we mean by the church is going to fix this problem? Because it's, it certainly isn't going to be fixed on Sunday mornings when we're sitting here, right? I mean, are we doing anything right now about modern-day slavery? I mean, I mean, nothing. Unless somebody's tweeting right now or whatever, like, or donating money online. No, nothing is happening right now. Um, no slaves were used in the putting on of this church. Interns were. Um, but there, there's nothing about this that really intersects with slavery, right? So how, do, how, is, how is church gonna triumphantly end or tackle modern-day slavery? Well, when you understand what a church really is, it's a gathering of people taking the name of Jesus, and that when the church leaves the gathering, the church scatters. And when you understand that the church it, it gathers and it scatters, then you have the distinction you need to be able to say, the church scattered is the church that's going to affect modern-day slavery. It's the Christians who gather here as Antioch on Sundays. As we scatter, we can use our time and our energy and our resources to speak into something like slavery. Not only that, but it's not the church gathered that really makes an impact on the community of Bend. That's why we don't create these, all these programs at Antioch about um, whatever. You know, people come to me and they're like, man, you guys talk a lot of justice, but I don't see anything you're doing. And what they're looking for is, where is the group or the ministry that has Antioch's name on it and the sticker that says Antioch Homeless or uh, Antioch Food Ministry, whatever. And we don't, we don't do that because that's not, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to equip 
the people of God so that when the people of God go out according to the calling God gives you, the gifts, the talents, and the resources, as you see opportunity in this community, you're able to get involved and to make a difference. And so how Antioch is affecting this town is through those of you who work at the Shepherd's House or Bethlehem Inn or the Giving Plate or Neighbor neighbor, um, Impact or Fan at Bend High or the $6,000 plus that was given on Christmas Eve that goes to different individuals or organizations that, that get it to needy families. Or it's, in, in maybe a less visible way, but in some sense, just as deep a way, it's those of you who are teachers by vocation. And you know the needy people that are in your classes, and you know the families that are hurting, and you find ways to bless or to help or to give to those needy families. And the church, Antioch, that on Sunday mornings scatters makes a difference in the city like yeast in, in, in bread and it, and, it, and it makes a difference. And that's the way it's supposed to be because it's not the church gathered that does that. It's the church scattered that does it. Does that make sense? So I don't care if somebody comes to me and they're like, you know, Show me the brand mark you created for whatever ministry. It's like, no, I, I don't want one more ministry to manage. And then when the person that was heading that up leaves, the tail wags the dog. Like, we can't let that fail because that would look like failure. So now we're going to grab somebody else, force fit it into that ministry, and, and we have to preserve it and keep it alive, even though that person, it's not theirs and it's not organic. It's like, no, you go and you do the ministry. What does it say in Ephesians? The role of pastors is to equip the body for the work of ministry. Where does the work happen? The work happens as the gathering, the ecclesia, the church, scatters into this community. So Paul starts teaching these guys, man, a lot of your life, a lot of your town's money, a lot of the culture is wrapped up in these buildings And don't you know that God is not there? He says, God does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And so the labor you put into the buildings... Athenians, men of Athens, that you think is serving God because you're creating this monument to serve him. Paul says he doesn't need that act of service. He doesn't need anything from you because he's the one that actually gives you life and breathes breath into you. Um, One of the most significant lessons I ever learned was when I first, like, age 22, I'm reading books of the Bible for the first time in my life, and, and I get to James, and I don't know if any of you read the book of James as an adult, but it's like, a, it's like reading the Lord of the Rings for the first time. It's like you can never get that experience again quite like that, you know, like that first time, like, wow, this is in the Bible? Like, consider your trials pure joy. It's like, I mean, I felt so empowered, like, no way, I can go into suffering and consider it joy because there's a a redeeming value that God can bring from this. And that God actually does care about my joy. 
And so it's not like he's forgotten about my joy when there's sufferings or trials, right? And it's not, I mean, it's just an amazing book. And you get to this verse, and you guys are probably familiar with it, but it says, pure religion is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And I remember reading that, and I'm like, no way. Because I love cheat sheets, right? Um, my whole strategy in engineering was cheat sheet based. Like, because they usually let you bring in some kind of cheat sheet. Like, it's, it's legal. So it's not like I'm cheating. Um, but I would try and work the system. Like, so you could bring in a, like, they would give you the dimensions in engineering. You can bring in a card this big. And I would spend, so while my friends were studying and working the problems and memorizing stuff, I would literally be with like a, a magnifying glass writing these, everything I could find from the book in here and sample problems. And then my whole idea was I'm going to use the cheat sheet to just, you know, work the formula. And I won sometimes and, and I, I absolutely crashed and failed sometimes. I got a 20 one time on a thermodynamics test because um, it didn't work. Like it wasn't the right system at all. Um, but I love, I, I'm just wired that way to try and figure out the system. Like even when it was like, okay, you're supposed to write a book. I spent more time trying to figure out how to cut the corners on writing a book than actually writing. Like, I mean, I would, literally, like, I'm saying too much. Um, I'm, I'm in, I'm, that's the, maybe that's the engineer part, right? Um, but I love cutting the corners, right? So uh, in, in high school, it was always the cliff notes and, but, but when I got to James and it says pure religion, I'm like, I love this. I love this. I love the great commandment. We're, we're going to do a, a series on that, right, starting next week. I love that because I love when it's boiled down, not by some preacher, but by God. Like in Scripture, it's boiled down for me. I love it because there's no ambiguity. And so I remember the first time I read that pure religion, oh, Okay, this is the answer. Like the answer to the question, what does God really want from me? What does God desire from me? It's Micah, you know, but to do justly and, and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. So there's a couple places like this. But, but in this particular instance, whoa, this is, this is the answer about getting an A on the test of religion. So I'm like, okay, orphans and widows. Okay, well, I, okay. Orphan, I don't understand. Orphans, I don't get it. So I'm in the middle of Clemson. Clemson's the name of the town as well as the college, right? It's, it's a college town. And um, you're in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, so I don't know any orphans. I don't know where any orphans would be. Um, but, but widows. I bet I could go to a nursing home and, and find people who are widowers or widows. And, and So maybe I could figure out why this is such a big deal to God. Maybe I'll go there. So I started driving every Sunday to the the this nursing home, 15 miles out of city, and all my friends uh, from the Presbyterian church that I started going to regularly would go to lunch, and I would, I would drive by myself out to this nursing home. And I, I immediately turned it into something cool, like, oh, I'm going to probably get all these great World War II stories, you know? Like, I'm going to get something out of this. It's going to be kind of cool. And, and um, if you've ever done uh, ministry like that, or hospice care, or anything like that, you realize it's not necessarily all World War II stories. So I learned that real quick. And then I began to realize um, some of these people suffering from dementia and, and other things, it's, it's, actually, it's actually very far from getting stories. It's not even um, at a conversant level. 
And some people, um, their bodies are to the point where uh, it's not very pleasant to be around them that way. And then I made friends with a guy who's a bit younger and very loose, and I thought, this is great. And so I would get cigars, and we'd smoke cigars. And I'm like, man, I'm really building this friend. I'm making this, this thing work. What, I didn't even know what it was yet, but I'm, this is a discipline. It's a duty, right? Um, and then uh, I had a girl come to me and say, a girl from Clemson who saw me there a lot on Sundays, and she came to me and said, hey, um, your friend, he keeps grabbing the girls, you know, the girl, the Clemson girls. And uh, we, we've asked him to stop. It's really awkward. And I'm like, wow, that, that is, that is uh, that's really awkward. So I go to him and, and I say, um, hey, man, uh, so this is, what, this is what they said to me, and, and uh, it's not cool, man. They don't, they don't like that. Oh, yeah, they do. <laughs> no, they don't. Um, and then he got really mad at me, and that was the end of our friendship. And I was like, dang, this, this is just so not working out, God. Like, I got no stories. I got a, an old guy who's mad at me. Um, and I don't, so I don't even know who I'm going to go visit next Sunday, you know. And so I kept doing this, and it, it began to get really frustrating. And so 15-minute drive through the countryside, South Carolina. If you've ever been to the south, you know there's kudzu growing up all over everything. It's humid. So I'm driving back um, several weeks later, and I'm really having this kind of frustrating conversation with God. God, I don't get it. I mean... It says pure religion is this, and so I jumped in, and I'm doing it, and I don't get it. I'm not, I'm not getting anything out of this. And it was right then, and I can, I can picture it clear as day, window down, humid, the kudzu, uh, country road. I got it. Pure love, pure religion, love and religion that models the kind of love that God has is love that gives and serves with no need or expectation for anything in return. It's, it's love that gives out of the purity of, of the value of loving people made in the image of God. It, it's, it's pure. It's not aimed at what am I going to get out of this or what's the reciprocal relationship. And Jesus tried to teach the Pharisees this. He says, it's okay to love people that love you, but, but that's not very hard. To, actually, it's actually really smart, you know, because, you, you know, scratch your back, you'll scratch mine. It's actually, it's actually not a bad way to get through life, but that's, that's great and all. It's not the same thing as loving the way God loves when there's nothing we can give him in return Yet he loves fully. And so pure religion to look after orphans and widows is, it's really, these are the people in that society that didn't have the economic status, the political status, that were in some ways a burden, and that burden wasn't going to lessen. That burden could exist for 10 years or for 20 years or for 30 years to hold up and to serve and to pour out and to take care of it. Why do people burn out on homeless ministries? Because it doesn't fix doesn't fix. Why do people burn out on taking care of the elderly? Because it doesn't fix. And Jesus comes along and says to the Pharisees, you guys want people to give you money. You're almost making them feel guilty when they don't. But they have elderly parents to take care of. 
There are instances where you should be telling them, don't give us money, take care of your elderly parents, honor them, even though you don't get like credit back in, in worldly terms. It's the right thing to do. And Paul is trying to say to these Athenians, there's a different idea of God here, the creator God, God the Father, that he doesn't need, he doesn't need us to serve him with human hands. He doesn't need anything from us because actually he's the fountain from which everything flows and he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And from one man he made every nation of men that we should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God is sovereign over all this. And he did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own prophets have even said. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. So in other words, you don't create reality yourself. You don't fashion true religion yourself. So, Here's the question. Why are so many people leaving the church today? There's a lot of reasons. Here's one of them. In the old, olden days, in uh, previous times, if you were non-religious and you, fl- you flipped over to being religious, that simply meant you were moving from uh, not being Christian to being more or... Uh, yeah, be more Christian. Because grandma took you to church when you were a kid. You learned Bible stories. It was in culture. And, and this was a kind of a Christian nation. And so to go from non-religious to religious simply meant getting serious about your faith as a Christian. Uh, that's generalization, right? And all generalizations ha- have their, their flaws. But by and large, this is kind of how it went. What happens in a pluralistic society is that you've got all these different religions, um, from Eastern religions to monotheistic religions. And so if you're over here as non-religious, and all of a sudden you're at this point of saying, um, I have this impulse to become religious, you look around and, and there, there's so many different answers, so many different religions that the, the real struggle culturally is to just get locked up and say, man, I don't know that I can really believe that any one of these is, is just the thing. Or how is this one the thing and not that one or this one or the other? And I got friends here and classmates and, and good people all around and they all have arguments and I'm new to all this. All their arguments are over my head and man, the whole thing of this pluralistic society just kind of locks me up. But I have this impulse to be religious, but which religion do I pick? I don't know. And so that all of a sudden leads to this, which is, I know, I'll be spiritual. And what happens is is we map out this ground here and we become spiritual, which is shorthand for, I don't know what, for I'm, 
I'm a person that wants to be a good person. I'm a person that wants to get in touch with the spiritual side of myself. I'm a person who believes there's something transcendent out there. Um, but that's, I, I can't really go beyond that. And so our culture has become less religious, more sp- spiritual, where spiritual is a subjective kind of word. So when you're becoming more spiritual and not necessarily religious, what does church really offer into that equation? To go and, and hear a lecture and to sing songs that are not familiar to me and to be with people that I don't know that I really have a relationship with and to give money to an institution, boy, there's a lot of potential pitfalls to that. And, and then I'm, I'm locked. I'm like, I can't be broad anymore. I'm becoming narrow. And what if I disagree with some of the things I'm hearing? Um, they, they hit buttons I've got. Boy, it'd be a lot better if I just didn't partake in that institutional kind of picture, but rather I just be good at being spiritual. And in that, it's very hard to, to go deeper in Christianity, to learn theology, to understand Bible. So I, I honestly believe that probably less than 10% of the, of the people in this room right now really read the Bible on a regular basis. It's not an indictment. It's just, a, I think, a reality. And without reading the Bible, you can't experience that there's this life-giving quality to it. It's not, just a, it's not just a sacred text, but it actually will argue itself onto you because it's unbelievable how God works through Scripture to speak to you in a personal way. And if you don't read it, you can't experience it. And if you can't experience it, you can't begin to say, no matter whether I feel like it or not, I'm going to do it because I know that that's a source of life. And so before, when it would be, hey, you need to read your Bible, the answer would be, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Because I know that it's life-giving or I've experienced it before in my life. And so you know what? I I get it. I need to get back to that. See, here's the reality today, though. If I say to somebody or if you say to somebody, you need to read your Bible, oh, okay, okay. But it's so new, it's like, well, I, I, I mean, what does it mean to read my Bible? Where, where do I read my Bible? And what happens when I jump into some part of the Bible and I'm, I'm so lost, I have no concept of how this ties into an overarching narrative or what some of the things are that are being brought up in this text. It's, it's kind of awkward or cumbersome. And, and if I don't have anyone walk me through that, I get bounced out of it. And now I feel guilty like I'm doing something wrong, or like if you know that I'm not reading my Bible, you're going to disapprove of me, and, and, and I'm, maybe I'm different than you, you who are reading your Bible, and maybe I'll just be spiritual. And we're missing this fact that culture is changing, and it's becoming very secular and very pluralistic, and that we're no longer an Athens culture, because notice the text. At the end of Acts 17, it says this, a few became followers of Paul and believed. Do you guys remember the beginning of the book of Acts? Turn there real quick if you can. In the beginning of the book of Acts, we see uh, end of chapter 2, 
we'll first look at verse 40 and 41 and then drop down. But Acts chapter 2, 40 and 41, Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter is giving a famous sermon to Jerusalem. Really the, the only full sermon to Jerusalem we have. We have Paul's sermon to Athens. Here's Peter's sermon to Jerusalem. And it says at the end of this, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And then it says, those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And that's probably men, so it's probably a, a lot larger number of people. You drop down a few verses, and in verse 46, it's talking about moving forward after this great sermon. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Paul gets two. Peter gets 5,000. Peter's a better preacher. No, not really. Um, Peter is preaching to a Jerusalem culture that has the same worldview. They already get that, that Yahweh is the creator. They already get that there's the promise of the Messiah. They already get the idea of sacrifice and, and atonement. They already get it all. All Peter is doing is saying, Jesus was the Messiah. And they're going, no way. That's unbelievable. And, and that's the amount of change. Paul walks into Athens, sits on Mars Hill, and he says, there's a creator, God, above everything. And he finishes his whole sermon, and he doesn't even mention the crucifixion. He doesn't even mention atonement. He doesn't even mention Easter other than to say there was a resurrection which validates or proves the authority or the power of this creator God. And so he's at square one with this pluralistic society arguing for the most basic tenet of a creator God, theism. And he starts there. And here's what I, we need to say we need to see is that there was a day when America was a Jerusalem culture. You could stand up in front of a bunch of youth and preach the crucifixion and then give an altar call and say, do you want to accept that Jesus and bring people forward? And people would come forward because they already got the worldview of Christianity and they knew they should be living that way. And you could even say, um, would some of you recommit your lives to Christ because you know the truth, you're just not living it. And that was a Jerusalem Peter kind of sermon. And our culture is shifting and has shifted, I think certainly in the Northwest, from a Jerusalem culture to an Athens culture. And I and you and we have to change and understand how to ad adapt our conversation to our coworkers, our family members, the person sitting next to us, to say, I'm not going to presume that you share the same worldview. I'm not going to presume that you know all this background that maybe I know. I'm going to presume that, that you are, are living in a pluralistic society that's very confusing and sometimes overwhelming. And guess what? There is a God who created everything. There's a God who's close to you and wants a relationship with you. There's a God who made a way for you to have a relationship with him. 
And oh, by the way, a lot of the trappings of religion and a lot of the buildings and a lot of the things that you look at that, you, that really just, you kind of know that they don't sit right with you. They feel hypocritical or they feel like they have more to do with man's religion than a relationship with God. You know what? Yeah, maybe sometimes they do. And that's okay. We can critique the human side of religion because sometimes it does do things that has nothing to do with the purity of God's love for us and, and modeling that, the purity of our love for others in his name as we follow him. Does that make sense? And the conversation somehow has to change because the hearer dictates a lot of what the speaker says. You can't pull a, a, a truck up to a trailer, get one foot within the hitch, one foot to the trailer, then, then drive away and go, how come that trailer didn't come with me? You know what I'm saying? And as Christians, is, is we have to somehow undergo an evolution where we understand that we can't just make an attempt at conversing with people and get kind of close to where they're at and then, and, then, and then wonder why they didn't come with us. That if we really want to engage our friends and our family and our culture, we have to spend the time getting all the way up underneath, getting it all the way hitched up, and then driving away where the trailer follows us. And that means that one of the things we have to do is love the Lord our God with our mind, which we're going to talk about in a number of weeks, and know how to do like Paul, which is translate our faith into the culture in which we sit. I hope that makes sense. Father, um, you've called us more, you've called us to more than just to enjoy uh, and accept our faith and, and, and experience it ourselves. It's not just about us. It's about us being in relationship with you and also others being in relationship with you. It's not about being so narrow-minded that we think that we're at the center of the universe. And I just pray that you would help coach us through not only how um, to grow our own faith because we all struggle. We have our sufferings and we have our doubts and we have our fears. But I pray in all of that that you would give us the eyes to see the people around us the institutions around us, the culture around us, and that we would spend the time and the energy, that we would put the sweat equity into learning how to engage about our faith with those around us. Just pray that you do an amazing thing in the life of Antioch this year in 2013, and that we truly might be a light to our city. We pray that in Jesus' name.